Two stories today, both about feeling out of place. Both about finding oneself in the middle of complicated and mysterious rituals, understood clearly by everyone except you. Two stories about how keeping open minds and trying new things not only helps get through a foreign situation, but earns respect and friends along the way. You're listening to 2233, a podcast of exchange stories. This one time in uh, in Sri Lanka, I was like, it just really lucked out. I lived in a really small village, and uh, I was the only foreigner in this village. It was outside Colombo, though, so I had access to the city. But in my village, there was no other foreigners there, and I got stared at, and I was kind of an outsider. And in my village, it was basically one or two extended families that lived in the little village, and um, one of these people had like a giant house, and it ended up that I was living in this beautiful five-bedroom, four-bathroom house with a swimming pool. I mean, it was a fabulous setup for a fellow, and I just had this wonderful life, went to work on my scooter, and I went back to my house, and it belonged to this fam, this Sri Lankan family that was living in England. And normally they rent it out, you know, for the night or for the week. And I propose that I stay there for the year. And they loved it. And they actually became my family in the end. This week, what do you serve at a Buddhist wake? What do you serve at an Omani wedding? And how people come together through love or death in opposite parts of the world. Join us today on two journeys, both from the United States one to Sri Lanka, the other to Oman, and the story of a wedding and a funeral. It's 2233. We report what happens in the United States, warts and all. These exchanges shaped who I am. When you get to know these people, they're not quite like you. You read about them. They are people very much like ourselves. And oh, that's what we call cultural exchange. Ooh, yes. My name is Ivy Silverman. Uh, I'm from originally from New York. Uh, at the moment, I live uh, in Qatar um, as a professor in a community college. Um, I was an English language fellow um, with the program uh, in 2015 to 2016 and 2016-2017. I was really lucky uh, because a lot of, well, just being on the fellowship is really great. Um, Projects are usually a year and if you're lucky your project gets renewed and you get to stay for two years. Well, my project didn't get renewed but the relo officer found me another fellowship in the same region and uh, I just feel really lucky because I just had these not only one experience but two experiences that are so totally different. One was in Sri Lanka and the other one is Nepal. Sri Lanka, uh, the jobs were different, the weather's different, the people are different, the food is different, the climate was different. It just couldn't have been more different. Uh, in Sri Lanka, I was uh, my main project was I was 
a professor at Buddhist Pali University teaching monks um, English. All the things that I experienced, it's not anything like what I thought it was going to be. It ended up that I was living in this beautiful five-bedroom, four-bathroom house with a swimming pool. I mean, it was a fabulous setup for a fellow. And I just had this wonderful life, went to work on my scooter, and I went back to my house. And it belonged to this fam, this Sri Lankan family that was living in England. And normally they rent it out, you know, for the night or for the week. And I proposed that I stay there for the year. And they loved it. And they actually became my family in the end. came to visit at Christmas and they brought their kids and we all got to know each other and I got to eat traditional food with them and spend some time with them. And about three weeks after they left, um, I get this phone call from the owner of the house uh, who said, you know, um, Kumara, the husband's um, nephew just suddenly died. He's 31 years old. And I had met him. I'd met all the relatives in the house because they had the big house and they used to invite the extended family over for all the holidays and New Year and all of that. And I knew him. I knew the guy that died. I said, well, he died? She said, yeah, he's 31. It's a huge shock. And you know where he lives, Ivy. He lives in a paddy field. You know, it's not really a great place. We think, we were wondering, do you think it would be okay if we held the funeral and the ceremony in the house. Of course I said yes, but I mean, this is a Buddhist family and a Buddhist funeral and ceremony is much, much, much bigger than I thought. I thought it was gonna be a day or two. And she said, well, we'll have to bring the body there, but don't worry, we're gonna build a tent outside and everybody will be outside and there won't, you won't have too much interference. So, uh, you know, I said, oh, no, of course you can do it. And I'd been doing some work, playing some music, walking around in my, you know, in a bathing suit, the swimming pool. And as soon as I hung up the phone, there was a knock at the door. And there was the groundskeeper with a man that spoke English. And they'd heard that they got the yes. And they started to immediately transform the entire house. All the furniture was moved in other places. Folding chairs were moved in with white sheets all around, top to bottom. And I was asking her, like, what should I do? And this guy that spoke English said, well, you know, when the people start coming, they'll bring all the food and stuff. But right now, we're waiting. We're waiting for the body. We're waiting for the family to arrive. So we're doing the setup. And, you know, maybe, you know, we usually have some drinks and things. So I went out to the store and I bought all the Coca-Cola and juice that I could and coffee and cookies. I loaded up the house so it would be all ready when, when the people came. And they did. They started to come in droves. They started to decorate the street um, and hang the sheets and things to let the neighborhood know that somebody died. The next day, the family came, you know, and all the mourning and extended family started to come, and they actually brought the body into the house. And when I, when I told my friends about it, you know, people that I knew, colleagues, Sri Lankans and foreigners, they all said to me, well, you know, just go get a hotel. 
you know, there's no reason for you to be there. It's going to be this huge interference in your life, you know, for you to be there. And I said, well, no, it didn't occur to me to leave because I knew them. I knew the guy that died. And I said, no, I don't want to be away from it. I, I want to be in it, you know. So, you know, I mean, it's a funeral. And this guy left a, a pregnant wife. You know, it was horrible and a horrible shock. And nobody spoke English. But... Do you really need to speak English to share your grief, you know, with somebody in that situation? I didn't think so. I just went to the mother of the son and just, like, said, I'm really sorry and held her hand and, you know, cried with her for a while and just, you know, just had to just say that to all the immediate family. I went to work each day and each day there was like another phase where the body was there and people were coming. One night the monks came to say like a whole other prayer. And then one night during the week there was there was this tent and people are eating outside but they're also in the house and there were lots and lots and lots of children everywhere running all over the place. It seemed a little unruly and I mean I would go to work, come home from work and this would be my house. So I thought, well, maybe I'll do something, see what I could do to keep these kids occupied. And so I created in the kitchen this huge art table, and I got all the kids together, and we gave, gave them crayons, and they all drew a picture of the man that died, because they all knew him. And we put them all on the, we made like a little gallery, and we hung them up on the wall, and then we brought the wife in to see, you know, that was our little show of respect for him. So each day was a different event. Then one night the monks came and stayed all night and chanted. And then the next day was the actual funeral and I was invited to walk with them and we walk in the street uh, all the way, all the, all the way, all the way to the cemetery uh, where there was another funeral going on. And you know, it's very, very elaborate. Some of them were burning, some of them were burying. Um, we took the whole family there. We had to walk all through the streets with the cars and the body, and they were holding the body. And and then we all went back. And then the final day, you go to the you go to the to the temple to give alms to the monk to thank them for all the ceremony and all the work that they do. So we all marched, it's a huge temple on the top of a giant hill. We all walked up the hill and I met them. And what that main reverend there was actually a graduate from Buddhist Pali University. He got his master's there and that's where I was teaching. And since from then till now, he's a very good friend of mine. Um, I met him that day and we've always stayed in touch. He's always asked me about the family and it's nice to know one of the reverends. doing that, I mean, I guess uh, one of the cultural affairs officers said, well, lots of people get to go to weddings as a fellow, but not a lot of people get to go to a funeral. But for me, like there was just, there was no other choice but to go. You know, I just felt like I was part of it. And having done that, after that happened, 
I mean, I was no longer a stranger, you know, in the neighborhood. You know, I was the one that helped, that allowed people to ha have the funeral in my house. And after that, everybody, you know, smiled at me, friendly. The little kids used to come by. It was great. You know, it, was, it just made me feel very close to them. And it really changed my whole feeling about Sri Lanka, just having been there. It's like being on the outside and then experiencing that. Then you're definitely on the inside, whether or not... I spoke the language or not, you know, become part of the family, became part of the community. My name is Mickey Smith. I am from Georgetown, Texas, which is just north of Austin. I am a country coordinator in the U.S. Office of Foreign Assistance Resources at the State Department. Uh, I work for USAID. And my program was the Critical Languages Scholarship Program in Oman, in the south of Oman, back in 2008. When I think about the program and one of the things that really sticks with me, the first thing that comes to mind is a wedding that we attended. All the ladies as part of the program were invited, and it was quite a lovely thing, by um, the bride of this particular bride and groom pair to come to her wedding party, females only, and get a sense of what it might be like. <laughs> And I think we were really excited and intrigued to say, okay, what, what would a wedding be like? We know there won't be any men at this particular party. What will, it, what will the experience be like? So we, um, many of us had already gone to the local markets and picked out traditional dress. The Omani kind of national dress is what's called an abaya, which is a long black um, garment that goes over your regular clothes and also a headscarf um, that's sort of puffed up in the back in this lovely way. Um, a lot of us had gone to local markets and ordered our own custom abayas because that was sort of the tradition. So we had gone and outfitted ourselves with black abayas, but with a fair amount of bling. So one of the things people did was to add rhinestones to the sleeves or around the neck. You could choose different necklines, like sort of more um, Eastern style or collarless style. So we were really excited to be able to use this opportunity to go to this wedding to wear these custom abayas that we had carefully picked out and chosen. So that evening, we, we went to the wedding. There was a really long um, platform in the center, and a lot of ladies kind of gathered around um, the platform, sitting in chairs, almost as if it were going to be a fashion show. People were sitting around and, and talking and kind of waiting, and soon the music came on, which was really, really very danceable music. It was really unlike any other music I'd heard before.
we we saw the um, relatives, the sisters and future sisters-in-law of the bride come in and kind of an organized fashion and begin to dance down the platform in a very specific style that was somewhat syncopated and, you know, kind of was like a bit of a dancing fashion show. And one person would go all the way to the end and turn around and come back. It was really a fascinating thing because it was sort of an event around this wedding in which the family could all participate and say, you know, we're welcoming this bride into um, our family, or we are sending our sister off to be a part of this new family in addition to ours. So it was really, really cool. The food for the wedding, once it was served and we were invited to eat as well, um, we all kind of made our way to these long tables off to the side that had very large platters of rice and lamb. We put them on our plates and we looked around and we noticed that there really weren't any utensils at all. And I think because of the, you know, program being for these American kids, most of the uh, meals that we had, you know, did have utensils or maybe bread to eat with. I, I can't really remember. But in this particular case, I thought, how in the world am I going to gracefully eat this rice and lamb in a way <laughs> that um, is appropriately formal for this, you know, kind of important and formal occasion in this person's life? How am I not going to, you know, kind of embarrass myself? So we uh, we <laughs> we loaded our plates with the lamb and rice, which, by the way, is one of my favorite meals and smelled incredible. We went and sat back down at the folding chairs that we'd been sitting in um, without a table and sat with the plates and <laughs> looked up and saw a group of three slightly older women all wearing a niqab, which covers the face, but then sort of holes for the eyes so that we could really see that they could not wait to see <laughs> what it would be look, it would look like when we would, you know, start to eat the rice. Um, and so that, of course, upped the, the pressure and the stakes a little bit. Once I, you know, started to eat the rice, Basically, the, the unthinkable happened and the rice began to, this very white rice began to rain down on my black abaya in great contrast. And um, th these ladies thought that this was the most hilarious thing they had seen probably that week. Um, and they, sh they started to show us how to kind of form our hands in such a way that it would be a little bit of a, a small bowl that we could actually get the rice up to our mouths and eat more successfully. I will probably never forget that because as I, you know, go to other situations where maybe I need to use my chopsticks or I am at an Ethiopian restaurant and I need to eat with injera, I think to myself, okay, <laughs> at least I know how to make kind of a small uh, bowl with my hands and eat rice, even in an elegant environment. <laughs> I 
2233 is produced by The Collaboratory, an initiative within the U.S. State Department's Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs, better known as ECA. My name's Christopher Wurst. I'm the director of The Collaboratory. 2233 is named for Title 22, Chapter 33 of the U.S. Code, the statute that created ECA. And our stories come from participants of U.S. government-funded international exchange programs. We heard from two Fulbrighters in this episode. Ivy Silverman walked us through a funeral in Sri Lanka, while Mickey Smith struggled to eat at an Omani wedding. Both events surely outside the scope of their Fulbright programs. That said, for more information about ECA exchange programs, including the Fulbright program, check out eca.state.gov. We encourage you also to subscribe to 2233 wherever you find your podcasts. And we would love to hear from you. You can write to us at ecacollaboratory at state.gov. That's E-C-A-C-O-L-L-A-B-O-R-A-T-O-R-Y at state.gov. Special thanks this week to both Ivy and Mickey for sharing delicate details from diametrically opposed life events. Manny Pereira interviewed Ivy, I interviewed Mickey, and I edited both episodes. Featured music during Ivy's segment was The Ants Built a City on His Chest by Turtle Doctor. During Mickey's segment, you heard some traditional Omani wedding music. Music at the top of each episode is Sebastian by How the Night Came, and the end credit music is Two Pianos by Tagirlius. Until next time.